Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Actually, these kinds of things, when we get to dedicate children or baptize children, it's some of my favorite parts of the work that I get to do. And with so many little ones here in our community, we have a lot to be grateful for. And we're reminded of that each and every time we get to do this. Uh, we get to see them waving palms, for sure. And we're going to actually talk a little bit more about the themes of this Palm Sunday in a bit. But, but first, I want to look back at some of where we've been for the the last few weeks in the parables of grace as we work into Holy Week here today. And those of you who haven't been with us, that's part of why we do this in our teaching. We try to get you up to speed so that everything is clear and easy to deal with, I hope. Anyways, we were looking at this collection of sayings that Jesus has that an author and uh, theologian named Robert Capon groups together in what he calls the parables of grace. And one of the reasons that Capon puts all these stories in a group like this is because at a certain point in the story of Jesus, we find that Jesus starts to be more focused on God's work in the world, and he's highlighting all the ways that his message is maybe different than some of the people in, his, in, in the same part of the world as him. And what this theologian Capon notes is that after Jesus loses his cousin, who is this guy named John the Baptist, he starts to tell different kinds of stories. And in a lot of ways, I think we can relate to this because maybe his emotional health just took a hit. Maybe he just needed to withdraw from the busyness of his own schedule and the rhythms of life that he had. This is something that we experience when we grieve as well. But perhaps what seems to be clear is that Jesus had this growing self-awareness that this traveling ministry he started, again, he's walking all over Palestine trying to help out in various communities. The community that he'd initiated, he started to come to grips with the fact that it and this commitment that he had to building a, a group of people that were committed to divine justice and affection, this thing that he had started was probably not gonna usher him into office or into a place of power. Instead, I think Jesus started to catch on that it was going to cost him his life. And so his stories started to be tinted with irony, where in the parable of the lost sheep, he alludes to how God's posture towards us is hardly like that of a shrewd shepherd who focuses on his flock and he doesn't worry about odd sheep wandering off. That's just part of doing business with sheep. You just lose one now and again. But no, Jesus paints this picture and a vision of the divine where God is this wild-eyed shepherd who goes off and is intent on saving any sheep at all costs, which is a terrible way to run a business. With his point being that it's often our lostness, because we're a lot like sheep, that's what reveals God's character as gracious. And then similarly, a couple weeks ago, we looked at this story of an unhelpful friend, this person who couldn't be bothered to help his friend in the middle of the night. And we saw that it was the person knocking on the door with shameless audacity, this person who is always short on resources and on the outside looking in. That shameless audacity and the way in which that person comes again and again, that's what gets the divine to get up from rest. And in his writing, Capon argues that this irony that Jesus started to use in his stories, it was intended to catch his audience off guard. And Jesus was becoming more and more convinced that he was probably not going to end well for him. And we probably can assume that that would have bothered his friends as well. Where these notions of kingdom and a way of power, where people thought that Jesus was their ticket to significance, this would have been dashed. And in the wake of that disaster, Jesus was revealing to them a more humble way of life, of renewal and transformation. And this is 
It would have been so much more different than what people were used to listening to. A path laid out for them in which death and loss and brokenness were no longer the things that threatened to keep them from grace. But instead, those difficult things became the doorway for the divine to rush into the world. And this is what last week's story, this parable of the mustard seed hinted at. First of all, in the way that Jesus told the story after restoring a woman's back, confronting those who wanted her to be left out of community and they wanted people to follow the rules more than they wanted people to be healthy. And Jesus seemed to be saying that with this story of a seed, that a seed planted and like yeast mixed into dough, not always with precision, not always done really well, and not always with exacting standards, but with the intention of wholeness and wellness for all, well, in this way, Jesus was telling a different kind of story. And this is why we considered how Jesus plays with this image of how God's kingdom can always be found in the smallest things carelessly tossed into barren places. And just a quick note here, we always try to stay connected to you in the ways that you live your life, in everyday experiences, and this is why we try to keep the conversation going by creating extra online content, and we did this this past week with a little video that looked at things like seeds and soil and how that all relates to spiritual life. And if you happen to miss out on that, you can always find these kinds of things on our YouTube channel if you're into that. The point is, is that in our time together last week, we acknowledge that our own lives can be found to carry the seeds of grace. And sometimes this happens when we cultivate grace really well in our lives, when we're at our best, but also sometimes it happens when we neglect ourselves and we aren't attentive to life and we don't give thought to those things that are happening all around us, which is one of the points of Jesus' story because he talks about how seeds always do their job. They go into the ground and from the death and the darkness there, they always spark life. Life that, like in Jesus' story of a mustard seed in the ancient world, would overtake everybody's garden. It would get out of control, offering healing and restoration for anybody who happened to be walking by. And we also see this picture of life that in all the complexity and difficulty that you and I face today, We can see that grace still shoots up in the relationships and homes and communities that we walk by. Because like a mustard seed, grace does its job when it's planted, quietly growing and expanding and flourishing for the good of us all. And we're actually going to spend a little bit more time in parables through this Holy Week, and we're gonna get to the first of those here in a moment, but before we do that, would you pray with me quickly? Gracious God, who in Jesus showed us that little children were privileged guests in your closest circle. And you taught us that to be childlike, vulnerable, powerless, curious, and unashamed, this is the surest way into the wonder and simplicity of the world you imagine. And we ask that you would move us now into the rhythms of this holy week where, as it happened for Jesus, we may choose to pay attention to the suffering and the difficulty and the darkness in our time. We ask that you would allow us to make room for your justice and your goodness and the ways that it draws us into deliberate forms of living. And just as in the first century, we acknowledge this week that there are political forces at work in our world, which we ask as always then, 
that in and through all these things that your kingdom would come, especially in Alberta this week, that forces of culture and power that seek their own gain would be exposed and resisted, and that we would be hope-filled in this province, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and inspired all of us in our efforts to advocate for those around us. We pray that you give us courage and grace to follow you, not just as we head into this week, but also now in this moment as we engage these texts today and the themes of this significant week. And however we come to these moments, may we find you to be kinder and more gracious, more faithful than we could have ever imagined because that is what Easter teaches us. And so we wait for it to come. And as we do, we pray in the name of Christ, our hope, amen. All right, well, we have already said this a few times today. It is Palm Sunday, and quick note, here at Commons, we, are, we oftentimes break on Palm Sunday with liturgical rhythms, which is when usually you would see a stole that's purple, and we have had the purple one on during Lent, but today we have switched to green, which for those of you who might still be getting used to us wearing fancy scarves here at the front, we carry this as a practice in our community so that everybody in community knows, even if you're a guest with us today, that today we are observing specific moments in time, moments that the church abroad celebrates with us today. And so on Palm Sunday, we break out the green of the leaves and the celebration of Jesus coming into Jerusalem a week before his execution. And we should, as we did in the middle of our worship, we should hear the sound of palm branches in our ears. And we also may realize then that during Lent and the story of Jesus from manger to hillside to dusty roads, all of these things and themes bring us to now in this moment where in the story of Jesus and in our practice of it as Christians here today, things are getting serious. And we're gonna look at the story of Luke, how Luke looks at how Jesus came into Jerusalem. We're gonna look at that at the end of our time here today. But before that, we're gonna spend some time in another parable that Jesus told, which we're gonna do on Good Friday and Easter as well this year, which will be super meaningful, I hope. And the truth is, when we're listening to Jesus as a storyteller, we do so because we find that Jesus' stories play a particular role in our lives. They're disruptive. See, scholars are almost unanimous in the fact that they think that Jesus' tales were intended to provoke the people who were listening to him, to catch them off guard like a rogue wave in the open sea in, in the hopes of bringing truth and life to them from unexpected angles and perspectives. And if you think about it, this is actually what all great stories do, which is why we love them. And as scholar Amy Jill Levine contends, stories hold our interest because people in them do what they are not expected to do. And this applies to so many stories that I love. Things like, well, ridiculous human achievements, like that of Alex Honnold's free solo climb without ropes in Yosemite. I don't know how many of you saw this film, but it's an incredible story. He did something really unexpected in that he climbed up this rock face without any safety net. For those of you who follow Game of Thrones, I love the story of how Tyrion Lannister dealt with his father issues. Those of you who've seen this, you know what I mean. And one of my favorites, though, is this sort of offbeat example I can offer you, and this is from a 2009 film called Get Low, which stars Robert Duvall there on the left as this awkward and grumpy hermit type with this unknown and mysterious past. 
and Bill Murray, who's a bit of a shyster. I don't know if he is in real life. He's certainly a comic, but he actually runs the local funeral home in the story. And the basic gist is this, that Duval's hermit approaches Murray's funeral director and asks him to do his funeral, which Murray agrees to right away because of the rumors that Duval's character is super rich. But here's the catch. Duval wants to do his funeral before he dies because he wants to hear what people are going to say about him. And I won't spoil what happens in the movie because you should go and watch it. And the truth is you probably already want to because you're probably into dark comedies that are a little bit too slow for their own good like I am. Or maybe, it's like Levine said there a minute ago, that even just the hints of a good story can capture us when we hear that somebody might do something that's unexpected, which is something that I want us to, I want to push you to think about today before we get into Jesus' parable. This idea of seeing our stories as a parable. And by that I mean, I think we can learn to practice the art of imaginative interpretation when it comes to our own histories, like Jesus teaches us to when he talks about lost sheep and unforgiving servants and the like. And maybe where we have lived through difficulty or we've experienced illness, or maybe we've ended up in a position or a situation that we couldn't have imagined five years ago. Or maybe we find it hard to imagine the boundaries and the details of our lives changing because of where our path has brought us to right now. Whatever the case, Jesus' stories have a way of inviting us to consider the assumptions we make about who we are and about who God is, yes, and how we tend to take responsibility for things in our story that aren't our fault. Or we do the opposite and we avoid owning our mistakes. Or maybe we start to realize how we construct our future as firm and we see ourselves as helpless to change anything in our lives without realizing that there certainly must be unexpected ways that grace could turn the course of our story. Because when you think about how Jesus was always painting a different picture of the divine with a parable, how he worked so hard to disrupt the ways that we come up with boundaries about what is good and about who is good and who's on the outside and inside. When we follow Jesus' example, it's not so hard to see how we might start reworking our lives with some of Jesus' divine creativity. And how listening to Jesus tell a story, listening to Jesus' imagination might change the way we remember and we tell and we shape our own stories. Now, this kind of imaginative work is what Jesus was doing in Luke 18, where he said this, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that same town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. And for some time, the judge refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God and I don't care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what this unjust, says, unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. 
So kind of a fun story. And right off the top, we can see that we have these two characters. There's this judge and there's this widow, or as she's known in the text, a persistent widow. And this is actually what the parable is often called. And we see that this story follows uh, from lesser to greater rationale, something that Luke uses a lot in Jesus' stories, where similar to the story of the unhelpful friend from a couple weeks ago, there's this formula of if this character in in the story is like this, how much more or how much greater is the divine response. And the catch in this story, though, is how these two characters, a judge and a widow, fit with this formula. Because right away, we learn that there's a judge, and he doesn't fear God, which may be a reference to how this character doesn't follow the Jewish law or doesn't observe all the rules. And he certainly doesn't care what anybody else thinks, which could refer to how he doesn't participate in community. He doesn't have a lot of friends because he's not bothered to care. He's, we're not sure if he's impartial or if he's a jerk. We just don't know. And then we see that there's this widow, and the inference here is that she's involved in some contentious legal battle, and she wants justice for and from her adversary. And traditionally, the interpretation of this story favors her cause. We're not sure about the judge, and so we view the widow as an underdog but a closer look at the story undermines this view. Because as Amy Jo Levine argues, we should offer this widow a little bit more agency and the hints of this are in the vocabulary. She has come to this judge demanding justice against her opponent, but that's, that's not, justice isn't the best translation here. The Greek term ek dikeo is what she uses and it's actually a demand for vengeance. And interestingly, we know of a powerful Jewish woman named Babatha who lived near the Dead Sea about 60 years after Jesus, right about the same time this this text was pulled together. And the documents we have describe this woman as being twice widowed, but that she was well positioned. And among other things, she's shown to have seized her dead second husband's property, and she used the Roman courts to gain guardianship of her son from her first marriage, and she was sued by the second husband's other wife. So much drama, right? But she sounds amazing. And the point is that Jewish widows that we see in the legal documents from the same time were not necessarily cast as helpless and nor were they thrown out into the street, which Levine contends requires that we view this widow and her story with more ambiguity. She might be poor and destitute, but the parable doesn't make that the center of the story. In fact, it doesn't even mention it. She might actually be wealthy and powerful and vengeful. And there are some hints of the latter in the judge's words that we run across. See, when the judge finally gives in to this woman, he says, even though I don't care about religious rules or I don't care what anybody else thinks, I'm gonna see that this woman gets what she wants. And the Greek vocabulary he uses is so interesting because in effect, the judge says that this woman has been bothering him, causing him labor and strain, And she has worn me out. That's a direct translation, a literal translation using a boxing term, where actually what the judge is saying is that he feels the threat of being bludgeoned or beat up. And so he says, I give up. And he allows her her vengeance. 
giving this story a sense in which we are dealing with an unjust judge. A judge who's been intimidated and threatened into allowing yet another powerful person to eke out vengeance on their opponent. Maybe getting rid of a political adversary, maybe securing a deal over contested land, maybe getting revenge over some petty offense. We don't know. And we also don't know whether or not the judge himself is complicit. Maybe he stands to gain from giving this woman what she wants. Or maybe he just wants to retire in safety and peace. Either way, we're left to conclude that he's unjust. That's what Jesus calls him. Because he gives the woman what she wants, not what she probably deserves. Which brings us back to this lesser to greater formula that Jesus uses so much. Because in the end of the story, he says, look, if a faulty judge gets it, gets it wrong and doesn't give the vengeful and powerful what they deserve, how much more will God do the same? How much more will God judge people favorably when they don't deserve it? And literally, in the Greek, he asks, how much more will God be big-hearted, be patient and merciful when they are hardly justified in their cries for help? which is an interpretation that resolves one of the problems this story gives us, where God is pictured as an unjust judge. And how does it do that? Well, look at the story. God is unjust. God doesn't give anybody what they deserve, which seems to be the crux of so many of the stories Jesus tells. And it actually is the central shining truth of the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus brought to us about the divine. That if there's one thing we can count on God to do, it's to judge us unfairly. And where our world and our experience and all our wayward choices, our self-centeredness and our ignorance, our violence, our harsh words, and our willful blindness to need, where all these things teach us that we are just out of luck and eventually we're hooped and we begin to judge ourselves ever so harshly. Jesus tells us of an unjust judge whose mercy and kindness always tip the scales for our good. Which, if you think about it, is a really hard story to believe. And Jesus seems to be hinting at the difficulty of how we could ever believe this about God when he ends the parable of the judge and widow with this really cryptic question. He asks, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And Jesus doesn't answer that question. He just like leaves it hanging there to echo through the whole chapter on into the next chapter where we read about Palm Sunday. And Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem with his friends and followers. And unlike a ruler of significance or a returning military hero, Jesus rides towards the city on the back of a donkey. And his followers are blessing him and chanting that peace has finally come from heaven, bringing glory to all. And in the mix of all the palms waving and people shouting, Luke offers this really poignant image of Jesus cresting the hill because Jesus starts to cry. And Jesus says this, if you, 
talking to the city and the people in it. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you, hem you in on every side, and they'll dash you to the ground, you and your children within the walls. And they will not leave one stone from another because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. And if you just look at that, it can seem really harsh. But part of what Luke gives us here is a record of how Jesus seems to have had an inclination of where the Jewish people's desires would lead them. And it would lead them into a place of lacking peace and ultimately Roman conquest a few decades later where they longed for peace to come through violence and control. Jesus grieved for them because the story that he had brought to them about God was defined by completely different terms. Terms that we have heard in the parables that we've looked at these past few weeks, where God's character and means of working are consistently flipped on their head, and where, as Robert Capon puts it, we are left with nothing but a failed God. A God finally and for all out of any recognizable version of the God business. Which is why Jesus said as he rode into town that day, if only you could see how God had come to you. And why this is such a compelling story because in it, God doesn't seem to be doing what God is supposed to do. Because Jesus didn't exalt in the people's cheers, he started to cry. And in the coming chapters, Jesus doesn't take the support of the crowds and turn it into a self-glorifying or extravagant rant. No, he marches into the temple and he starts taking names and he starts flipping tables. And why was Jesus doing that? Well, he was trying to clear the, ta- he was trying to clear the court for the Gentiles. Those people who had long been crowded out of God's presence by the business of religion. And this offense, which was motivated by justice on Jesus' part, it may have been the final straw in why the religious rulers ultimately arrested him, which is how Jesus totally changed our image of a God who judges us. God doesn't judge us as a returning emperor or a warlord to be feared, but God judges us as a sobbing prophet, wishing that we would choose the way of peace which is, when you think about it, what this story of the judge and the widow were about all along. Because when Jesus asks, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth at the end of that story, he wasn't asking if God might find some people in the world who claim that you have to believe the right things. And he wasn't asking if God might find some people who will do their best to avoid all the vices or learn all the rules or build communities for the clean and the safe and the moral types in the world. No, what Jesus was wondering is if God might find a few who would recognize the scandal that grace creates in the world. And if God might find some people who are completely disinterested in making a case to defend their own lostness. Some people who are self-aware enough to know and realize that in the end, all of the charges about how awful you and I are, they all stick every single time. And Jesus was wondering if there was a few who might realize that God will always be unjust with us in the way that our error and our pain 
are undeservably forgiven. And why was Jesus asking this? Because he knew how hard it is to see and believe these things sometimes. And maybe as we've talked about these stories, even here today, you felt your view of God being stretched. Certainly some of you must have believed that God was a judge, yes, but not one that would look at your life or look at like Jesus did at Jerusalem and begin to cry. Grieving for the ways that you choose your own way to your own detriment sometimes. Or the ways that you feel to see the kindness of God extended to you in things like faithful friends or in professional reviews that are hard on you but they're honest and they help you to know yourself. Or maybe the ways that you work against the peace of God in your continual striving for perfection or in your lack of care for those who are right around you or in your continual avoiding of the pain and difficulty maybe that you need to work through in your own time. And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't say that judgment doesn't come to us. He saw Jerusalem's future and Jesus knows our propensities too. And we can't get around the fact that our own willful and stubborn way of pushing for what we want without exception, we will get what we want. And we will be judged most fiercely by our own painful choices. But what Jesus came to say is that if you are willing to look and you are patient enough to search, you will discover that the divine has in fact come to find you. Not to judge us guilty or broken or lost, though we are, but to carry us to God's good future where we will not get what we surely deserve or what we surely don't deserve which is this way of peace and life beyond our imagination. Let's pray together. God, we come now to the heaviness of Holy Week and even in the ways that we've conducted liturgy today, we have come with you into the city and we've celebrated your arrival but we acknowledge even in the stories that you tell that sometimes we don't know this version of God that you're talking about sometimes. Then we confess that. And we ask that you would, as we listen to you tell stories of the divine this way, that you would give us creative imagination for our own stories. And all the unexpected ways in which your goodness breaks through into us and all the unexpected ways that the boundaries that we've constructed may not be so permanent, but that in fact grace is at work in inviting us to change and to grow in the simplest ways. We're grateful today for this image of you as a judge who doesn't ever judge us fairly because you are always good. And you don't give us what we deserve. And we're thankful for that. And we pray that in the ways that this might be hard to see, hard to believe that the story could actually be that good, would you give us grace to pursue your peace and the future that you offer us in this kind and humble way you lived for us. And as we enter into Holy Week and we journey with you into the darkness of Good Friday, holding on for the hope of resurrection, 
We ask that you would hold us as you promised to in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.